As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Do you want to be more confident in your faith? Well, I've got the show for you right here on Unapologetic. Welcome back. I'm Justin Briley. I head up the Theology and Apologetics Ministry, Premier Unbelievable, and it includes this show. And today we're concluding a conversation on God, science and atheism with John Lennox, Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science at Oxford University. This was recorded in the observatory tower of his own Green Templeton College. And you can find links to the book we referenced today as well, Cosmic Chemistry with today's show. This conversation used with kind permission from SBCK, the publisher. Thanks by the way to Nathaniel, who's described this as a unique apologetics podcast, saying an original apologetics podcast with a twist uh, thanks for the rating and review nathaniel do leave us a positive one as well yourself it'll help others to discover the show too and if you want more from us go to our website premierunbelievable.com quick shout out as well we've got an event coming up very soon 12th of july uh, millennials and gen z are they ready to believe in god John McRae, the YouTuber also known as What Do You Meme, is going to be in conversation with Michaela Peterson, daughter of famed psychologist Jordan Peterson, who has her own big following among young Gen Z and millennials. Uh, You can be part of that as well. You can be asking questions. You can be part of the live audience. It's completely free to register for this online event. Just go to premierunbelievable.com and click through to the link there. For now, hope you enjoy the final part of my conversation with John Lennox. I've mentioned once or twice in the course of this chat, inference to the best explanation. You see, science has got several ways of explaining things, and one of them is inductive explanation. That is where you do a lot of experiments, you can repeat them, and you come to a conclusion, and you expect to happen tomorrow what happened yesterday and so on. But there's lots of fascinating things in the universe that are not repeated like the origin of the universe, the origin of life. And there you have to use inference to the best explanation. In other words, the methods of the historian or forensic scientist. Hercule Poirot cannot say, well, let's see what happened. Let's repeat the murder and we can see exactly what happened. You can't do that. So he has to use inference. Now, if A did the murder, you'd expect X to happen. X happened. But then Y has happened, and that excludes A. But if B did the murder, both X and Y would happen. So that B is a more plausible candidate. And so you make an inference to the best explanation. And that's the secret of Agatha Christie's debutments. And and that's the sort of explanation that you might then be tempted to give for 
phenomenon like the fine-tuning of the universe for life. So Absolutely. The, these extraordinary physical constants and laws that seem so precisely balanced in a way that allows life to develop in the cosmos. Give us an example, firstly, of this, th- these types of laws, and then why you think it's valid to use an explanation such as a designer. Well, way. Paul Davis, a physicist who I know and is always worth reading, has got a whole array of things. And one of them is if you consider the ratio of the electromagnetic force constant to the gravitational force constant, if you uh, decrease that just by the slightest one part in 10 to the power 40, that's a one with 40 zeros at it, then you you will only get large stars. If you increase it by one part in 10 to the 40, you'll only get little stars. But in order to have carbon-based life, you must have both big stars and little stars. So the fine-tuning has Mm. to be unbelievably precise. There are Mm. even more Mm. uh, significant examples given by Roger Penrose, who one of his fine-tuning arguments is that if you want to have a universe with a second law of dynamics, in other words, one in which a car will rust eventually, uh, disorder increases, the creator's aim, and he uses that word, he doesn't mm-hmm. believe in a creator, must be accurate to one part in 10 to the power 10 to the power 123, which number, as he points out, is so big that if you put a one here and a zero in every elementary particle in the universe, you can't even write it out in decimal basis. So this is a huge thing. Mm. It demands explanation. There's a very eminent philosopher here in Oxford. He invited me to be grilled by his students and talk to them about why I believed in God. And he said, I hope you're going to use the best argument against atheism. (laughs) I said, well, I'd use it if you tell me what it is. Oh, he said, if ever I were to become a Christian, it would be the fine-tuning argument. He said, that really does have Mm. bite. And so it's not that I'm sitting here as a Christian saying, look, you guys ought to think about this. Mm. They are thinking about Mm. it. Mm. It's part of standard science now. This is not some peripheral little thing. It is hardcore mainstream science, Mm. and it raises a huge question. Now, I'm well aware that the way out of it for many scientists, like our astronomer royal, Lord Rees, is to say that there is a multiverse. There are infinitely many universes, and so you'd expect, if that's the case, there to be one like this. But there's no evidence for this, these universes. And I may be prejudiced, but I was taught quantum physics years <laughs> ago at Cambridge by Sir John Polkinghorne. And he just says, these are not accessible to us. Mm. And he feels, even on the basis of the principle of economy or explanation, that one universe that has been designed and created by an intelligent creator is infinitely to be preferred to an infinite collection of universes to which we've no access. But I would add that philosophers have been quick to point out that it's not either fine-tuning shows there's a God or there's a multiverse. God can create as many multiverses as he likes, so the multiverse hypothesis does not get rid of God. Mm, mm. The, the natural response may be, yes, John, that's all very well, but God is a sort of science stopper as an explanation. I can't investigate God, therefore, you know, I, I don't want to, that to be the final explanation. And, and, and in any case, 
the more we do learn about the fine-tuning of the universe, it's likely that we will eventually find some naturalistic explanation. And it's just another God of the gaps argument. God will eventually get squeezed out of this particular argument. I mean, what's your response to, to that idea that it's just more God of the gaps thinking? Well, the point is that by discovering the fine-tuning, we are investigating God. Mm. We're investigating, the, you know, the biblical statement, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I, I made the point earlier, God is the God of the whole show. Uh, Henry Ford isn't going to be found in researching the inner workings of a car engine. But you cannot explain its existence without him. What we're dealing with is a complementary approach. Mm. We're asking a bigger question. The science gives us the how uh, and uh, part of the why of of, um, function. It doesn't give us the ultimate purpose or the ultimate origin. And what these things are doing like fine-tuning. They're pointing towards something. They're pointing beyond themselves. And what I want to ask is, is it a reasonable inference to a best explanation to postulate a God who's ultimately responsible for this, the complexity of this nature, or to postulate mindless, impersonal forces? And when I see that the atheistic explanation runs into the sand at the very first hurdle that is explaining our trust in human intelligence to sort the thing out, then, of course, I feel that it's much better to go for an explanation that makes sense than one that makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Having talked about fine-tuning at the cosmological level, you you also say there's a case for fine-tuning at the biological level. This perhaps is a more controversial claim because, in a sense, you know, it's almost been regarded as sacrosanct, the idea that Darwin showed us, you know, categorically that there's no need anymore to think of design in biology, that evolution, the principle of um, mutation and selection, provide all we need to show the way that the diversity and apparent complexity and designed aspect of life wasn't in fact designed. You know, Richard Dawkins has written many books essentially making this same point over and over. Why do you think the issue of design in biology isn't actually over? Oh, it's not over for many, many reasons. But to come to the actual business of fine-tuning, there are two Norwegians, I think it's Steinar Thorvaldsson and Ola Hussier, brilliant statisticians who have been working in the biological field. And they've just recently written a paper pointing out that there is strong evidence of fine-tuning in the organic world. Now, they say this is very early stages Mm. and there'd be a lot to be done. And I think Alistair McGrath has been making hints in this direction. And Marcus Eberlin, a brilliant uh, Brazilian uh, biologist, has written a book called Foresight. And he looks at the sheer complexity and the nature of that complexity of biological mechanisms and says they exhibit a characteristic of mind that is not possessed by natural processes, and that is foresight. Mm. And this is a very interesting development. So I I see this as a field that will burgeon out as we see, and we see the following, that Richard Dawkins' assessment of how life came to be and how it developed is increasingly turning out to be seen as very naive, if not completely false. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. 
Now, let me say something about that. I have here, because I don't want to misquote it, the famous statement in The Blind Watchmaker where he says, natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form of all life has no purpose in mind. It has no mind, no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is that of the blind watchmaker. Now, that's marvelous writing. Mm. The rhetoric is terrific, but it's nonsense. Because <laughs> if you analyze it, the first thing you notice is that it's not a sleight of hand, it's a sleight of rhetoric. You see, blind automatic process, that makes you think it hasn't been designed. But wait a minute, I have a self-winding watch. It's blind, it's automatic, so it hasn't been designed. No, it has been designed. In other words, where Dawkins is saying, this mechanism has no mind, what he is dodging is the question everybody wants to ask, but is there a mind behind it? Mm. That's a totally different question. Mm. And he hasn't even dealt with that question. So that's my first point, which is why, of course, there are many people around the world today who think that Darwin essentially got it right, that evolution is a mm. process that God used, they called it theistic evolution, to develop all the varieties of life. And clearly, to a certain extent, that is true, because we can observe the kind of thing that Dawkins, uh, that Darwin observed in his day. I'll come to that later, because mm. I have questions to ask. Mm. But before we even go down that route, concealed in this famous statement of Dawkins is a huge mistake that he had later admitted. Because look at what it says. We now know that this is the explanation for the existence of life. Do we? No. Darwin's natural selection and mutation, which Darwin knew nothing about, of course, is not an explanation for the existence of life for a very simple reason. Whatever natural selection does or doesn't do, it depends on life to do anything. So it cannot explain life. Now, it took Dawkins years from writing that to admitting in one of his more recent books that Evolutionary theories, Darwin's theory, does not deal with the origin of life. Now, that is hugely important because this simply drew the wool over people's eyes. Mm. Clearly, evolutionary processes are there. We all look different. There is variation. Mm. Darwin saw it in finch beaks and all this kind of thing. But however far that reaches, and I think there may well be a limit, and that is being admitted by many biologists today, where it wasn't in the mm. day that Dawkins wrote this book. They think that the neo-Darwinian synthesis, in the words of the systems biologist, Dennis Noble, who's a fellow of the Royal Society here in Oxford, doesn't need to be modified. It needs to be replaced. It's inadequate. Mm. But leaving that aside, we have the fact that life exists and this claim of Dawkins that permeates the whole of society, that evolution is the answer, is simply false. And I feel that there is, it's very important yeah. to tell the public that. I mean, Dawkins' argument that numerous small accumulations 
are, of mutations are going to do it. Well, just listen uh, to this. It, there's a third way mm. website, the third way of evolution, mm. operated by people like Dennis Noble and James Shapiro. Quote, the DNA record does not support the assertion that small random mutations are the main source of new and useful variations. We now know that the many different processes of variation involve well-regulated cell action on DNA molecules. Well, where is Dawkins' gradualistic mm, view? Mm, gone. Mm, mm. But the public don't know that, yes. Justin. And one of the reasons I decided to rewrite this book totally was to bring to public attention what serious biologists are doing in they haven't got rid of Darwin completely, but it looks as if they're getting very near to it. In other words, the mechanisms postulated in that statement for Dawkins, A, have nothing to do with the origin of life, and B, have relatively little to do with the variation of life. So now the subject is absolutely burgeoning. And one of the most interesting things to me as a mathematician is not so much the variation, but it's the origin, because what we now know that Darwin didn't know is that fundamental to all life is the longest word we've ever discovered, the DNA, the human genome, which is a word in four chemical letters, and it's three and a half billion letters long. It's a word-based biology. Now, this is what I love about what's going on in this topic. We've been talking about the effectiveness of mathematics, that is, we can describe some of what's going on in the universe out there by using the language of mathematics. Mathematical words, and some of it is extremely sophisticated. But now in biology, we're finding something very similar. It's a word-based universe in mm. terms of mathematics. Now we're discovering that genetics is word-based. So mm. life is word-based. Mm. Now, putting a Christian hat on, that resonates utterly brilliantly mm. with the initial statement of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. All things mm. came to be through him, which resonates with the mm. first statement in Genesis. And God said, let yeah. there be light. It's a word-based universe. So what's happening? It seems to me that within biology, whatever mechanisms are involved, and whatever the level of God's involvement, so to speak, direct rather than indirect, the whole thing, the way in which it operates and what it is, is pointing towards that intelligent word base. And when it comes to this extraordinary code that we find in nature, the DNA molecule, that code that needed to be there before any you know, purported process of evolution took place to allow life in all its variety... For you, I suppose as a mathematician and perhaps as much as an engineer as well in some ways, you see all around you that those kinds of codes, those kinds of structures need information. They, need, they, they don't simply arise by themselves. And, and as far as you can see, the science is dead against that idea of a kind of this, this piecemeal accumulation. Oh, absolutely. The point is they don't need information. They carry information. DNA is an information-bearing macromolecule, and it is giving the blueprint for proteins, which are vastly complicated machines. 
And, you know, I really knew very little before I started studying this, that you take a single cell, contains maybe 100 million proteins of 20,000 different types. And it's so small that a couple of hundred could be placed on the dot on an eye in a typescript. The tiniest bacterial cell, how much does it weigh? Less than a trillionth of a gram. And it's got thousands of molecular machines. A hundred thousand million atoms, a hundred billion atoms mm, mm. in the tiniest bacterial cell. It's absolutely without parallel in the non-living world. In other words, it's not that it's complex. It's the nature of the complexity. And we're back to Richard Dawkins mm. as an explanation for his own book. Dawkins' book is not the length of the human genome. <laughs> and yet we unflinchingly postulate his mind mm. as responsible for that book. So I often say to people, you look up in a room and you see exit. Mm. That's four letters. Mm. And you immediately know that whatever mechanical processes, manufacturing processes, robotic processes, automatic processes are involved in its construction. There was a mind behind it. Mm. Immediately, mm. four letters. Mm. Mm. And yet people sit in front of the DNA with its three and a half billion letters and they say, chance and necessity. That, to my mind, is completely absurd as an inference to the best mm. explanation. Mm. And in that sense, as you've said in the book, the conflict isn't between science and God. It is between these two worldviews that yes, people bring to the science, the theism and the atheism. And as far as you can see, actually, there's plenty more evidence supporting a theistic perspective, that there is a mind that makes sense of this extraordinary complexity and intelligibility than, than it is all just the result of blind, purposeless processes. Yes. You see, DNA in itself is enough for me. In the beginning was the word. But what has been unraveled, particularly by the systems biologists like Dennis Noble in recent years, is there's a whole epigenetic level control mechanisms above and beyond. There's information in the word, but then proteins that are specified by the DNA fold into three-dimensional shapes, a problem that has just been solved in the last couple of months by artificial intelligence. That carries a lot of information. And so there's level upon level upon level. And of course, what that is doing is pushing atheism into the background so that atheism becomes increasingly an atheism of the gaps. Interesting. <laughs> As we conclude, John, um, the subtitle of the, the, the book, it's called Cosmic Chemistry. The subtitle is Do God and Science Mix? In a nutshell, why do you think a reader can go away with from this, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, confident that actually they don't just mix, they're dependent upon each other in some way. I wrote the book in order to present both sides of a case, really, because I've taken the atheist case, if I put it that way, extremely seriously. What I wish to do is not to make people's minds up for them, but to give them insight into what is really going on at the highest levels as best as I can in this debate so that they get a hold of certain basic things, so that they understand the caricatures of God that have been used to reject God 
a delusory delusory God. So they can understand the nature of scientific thinking. So they're not fooled by not understanding what explanation is. And I have brought that evidence to bear, and I put it before them, and I say, make up your own mind. I think behind it all is the desire that so often people reject things that they don't like without considering them. And from a Christian perspective, I want to say, look, before you reject it, make sure you know why you're doing that and read the evidence. I've tried to be fair to it. I've read these people. I've interacted with them all of my life. And so to speak, this is my word uh, to point out that when it's all assessed, I find that the explanation that makes most sense to me is in the beginning was the word. And I hope that perhaps people coming to see that may begin to see there might be reason to think about the bigger thing, and that is that the word became human and lived among us. But that's a story for another time. Thank you very much for talking to me, John. Thank you. Oh man, I so enjoyed that conversation with the legend that is John Lennox. And if you want more from John, you could stop by the training and events section and enroll on our Confident Christianity course over at our website. It's got some great material from John from previous Unbelievable conferences to engage with. Uh, The links are with the show or at premierunbelievable.com. And while you're there, you could register for our Michaela Peterson event coming up on the 12th of July. You can be part of the audience there. It's entirely free to attend. You just need to register. Again, premierunbelievable.com or the link with today's show. Next time, we're going to be meeting Lisa Fields. She's the founder of the Jude 3 Project, and she's all about answering the questions of black urban communities in the USA. So look out for her next time. For now, thanks for being with me on this episode of the show. Do share it, and why not rate us and review us? That'll help others to find it too. For now, thanks, and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources, and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.